70-year-old Colonel J.J. Holland squinted at the random string of numbers. His eyes began to strain as he glanced at the clock. It was nearly 2 a.m. Holland had spent almost every night for the past six years hunched over his desk, attempting to translate this numeric code into words or phrases that made sense. He believed the encrypted message led to a vault of buried treasure. Thousands of pounds of gold, silver, and jewels worth millions. For this old army veteran, the sleepless nights would be worth it if he could break one of the two remaining Beale ciphers. The quest had consumed his life. He'd driven more than 150,000 miles between Alabama and Virginia in repeated attempts to find the riches. He'd spent more money than he could count on metal detectors, gasoline, and backhoe rentals. And this night was turning out to be another bust. That is, until his gaze wandered to a nearby book. Suddenly, Holland had a flash of inspiration. He snatched his pencil and started translating the cipher. It was working. Holland's fatigue faded away as he decoded it, letter by letter. Once he was finished, he beamed over his work. This was it, he thought. The exact coordinates to Beale's treasure. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Beale ciphers. Supposedly written by adventurer Thomas J. Beale, they contain instructions for how to find $60 million worth of gold, silver, and jewels. That is, if anyone can crack the code. Last time, we traced the history of Beale's treasure, beginning with its discovery in 1818. It's believed his three cryptic messages each contain a different piece of the puzzle. But only one has ever been solved, so the precise coordinates of the trove and the names of its rightful inheritors remain hidden. Today, we'll second-guess everything we thought we knew about Thomas Beale and his elusive hoard. We'll try to peel back the curtain on Beale and the elusive John's true identities. Then we'll evaluate why no one's found the treasure yet. Perhaps it was stolen away in secret. Or maybe it never existed in the first place. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Two hundred eighty-five, seventy-four, one, a hundred fifty-eight, two hundred forty-eight, two hundred twenty-six. This may sound like a string of random numbers, but you can decipher them with the right edition of the Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. If you turn to the page that corresponds to the first number, page two eighty-five, you'll find a hidden message. It reads, "Can you finish this puzzle?" Fundamentally, we're using the same kind of code Thomas Beale did in his papers—a book cipher, though his was a bit more complex. Book ciphers are simple yet incredibly secure. There is no way to guess what each number means without knowing the exact book and page Beale used. Even modern supercomputers haven't been up to the task. In 2014, a German PhD student named Malta Noon plugged Beale's ciphers into a cutting-edge decryption algorithm. It took 30 hours to break the already cracked cipher number two, which had relied upon the Declaration of Independence. However, when he fed it the remaining ciphers, he hit a brick wall. Since even computers seem to have trouble. Perhaps we should look inside the mind of the cipher's creator for clues, which is easier said than done. Everything we know about Thomas J. Beale is in the pamphlet James Ward published in 1885. Beyond that, we only have theories and speculation, which led some to claim that maybe Thomas J. Beale had another identity. The anonymous author of the 1885 pamphlet. Who were calling John caught a lucky break when he guessed the J in Thomas J. Beale stood for Jefferson. This led him to the Declaration of Independence, allowing him to break the second cipher. Inside was a description of the treasure and the general vicinity of its location. Many treasure hunters believe this is a sign Beale was connected to the founding father, Larry Hinson, who became obsessed with the ciphers. Wondered if Beale and Thomas Jefferson might have been related. Hinson noticed how innkeeper Robert Morris described Beale as a man with a dark and swarthy complexion. Morris attributed this to sun exposure, but perhaps there was another explanation. A 1998 study in the journal Nature took DNA samples from known descendants of both the Jefferson family and Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman. When they compared the two lineages, they found several genetic markers in common, suggesting Jefferson had fathered at least one of her children. We also know Jefferson employed a young servant named John Pernier during his first administration. Pernier had been described as having African ancestry, but at the time, his light skin led some to confuse him as Spanish or French. At this point in history, it was unusual for a person of color with no known family or work background to nab a high-status job with the head of state. This led researcher Larry Hinson to conclude Pernier might have been one of the president's natural children born to Ms. Hemings. After his stint at the White House, 
Pernier left Washington to assist Meriwether Lewis, the governor of the Upper Louisiana Territory. But when the famed explorer and governor supposedly died by suicide in 1809, many suspected that Pernier was somehow involved, even though such claims were largely unfounded. The staffer returned to Virginia, possibly to seek legal help from Thomas Jefferson. Then, in 1810, Pernier fell ill and died. Or so the story goes. Maybe Jefferson helped Pernier fake his death to avoid prosecution. To honor his father and avoid the law, perhaps Pernier adopted the name Thomas Jefferson Beale. If he had a youthful face, Robert Morris's description of Beale being a handsome young man fits the timeline. Hinson also learned President Jefferson often visited Lynchburg, Virginia, and may have dined with Morris on occasion. If Pernier was his servant, he must have met Morris, and he may have grown to trust the hotelier. Pernier could have even learned code-making from Jefferson. After all, history paints the president as one of America's most gifted early cryptographers. Unfortunately, there isn't any direct connection between Pernier and Beale besides their dark complexion and affinity for the Founding Father. No one can actually prove Pernier survived past 1810, or that Thomas J. Beale shared DNA with the president. But there's another candidate who makes more sense. According to research from Beale cipher enthusiast Peter V. Meister, there was a man named Thomas Beale who lived in Virginia at the time. This Thomas Beale came from Fincastle, Virginia, a small town around 20 miles from Buford's Tavern, which is allegedly near the supposed treasure. Morris described the Beale he met as high-born, meaning he came from money. Public education as we know it today didn't exist back then, so his eloquence and grasp of social mores indicated he belonged to the Southern aristocracy, which fits the profile of Fincastle Beale. Records show in 1809, a relative of his owned a plantation, which was worth a fortune. But there was a lot of friction within the family. From what we can tell, his father, Beale Sr., never got along with his folks, and he didn't show much interest in parenting Beale Jr. either. He abandoned his son in Virginia and traveled south to New Orleans to start over. When his father died in 1810, Beale Sr. was cut off from the family fortune entirely. It seems that Beale Jr., now without a father in his life, began getting in all sorts of trouble. In 1817, a man by the name of Thomas Beale entered a duel with a man named Mr. Risquet in Lynchburg, Virginia, allegedly over a married woman. He shot Risquet in the gut, then fled town before the sheriff could arrest him. Beale Jr. raced to New Orleans, where his absentee father welcomed him with open arms. Or at least, that's how Beale Sr. made it seem. In reality, his plantation was deeply in debt, and he saw a solution in Beale Jr. Beale Sr. used his son's name to defraud his creditors. On paper, he had his son buy the plantation for $124,000, nearly three times what the property was worth. That let him pass the debt to Beale Jr. 
We don't know why Beale Jr. agreed to sign, but maybe he wanted to believe his father's intentions were pure. However, once Beale Sr. revealed his true colors, Beale Jr. left New Orleans, likely hurt and dejected. He needed a change of scenery. Perhaps a hunting expedition to Santa Fe was just what the doctor ordered. That is, if this Beale is our guy. According to state records, Thomas Beale Jr. died of disease in New Orleans on October 22, 1823. That's a year and a half after he supposedly sent his last message to Robert Morris. If Beale died from an illness, you'd imagine he'd send someone to retrieve that box as promised. Yet no one ever returned to Morris to notify him of Beale's death or to claim the ciphers, which suggests either Beale forgot about them completely or this Thomas Beale is someone entirely different. Maybe the Traveler was a 19th century identity thief. Our mysterious code maker may have stolen the name from Fincastle Beale, which would make sense given how cagey Beale was about his past when talking to Morris. Or perhaps he knew the best security was anonymity. Remember, the names of his associates were supposedly concealed in cipher number three, if he went to so much trouble to hide their personal information, it's logical he'd do the same for himself. Maybe Beale's true identity is hiding inside those inscrutable ciphers. All we need to do is decode the puzzle. But rumors suggest someone, or rather something, had already cracked them and kept them a secret. The United States government. Coming up, the NSA's obsession with the Beale ciphers. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, Take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. For the last century and a half, hundreds of people have tried to solve the Beale papers. Each person who grabs a shovel believes they'll be the one to find the treasure. But whenever they fail to unearth the stash, a nagging suspicion creeps in. What if someone's already beat me to it? As of this recording, no one has claimed credit for discovering Beale's trove. 
Perhaps the only way to find it is with an enormous budget and a team of codebreakers. Which is why some people suspect the National Security Agency is one step ahead of the game. Sometimes referred to as no such agency, the NSA is the United States' most top-secret cryptographic organization. Inside their offices are rows of computer servers, sucking up raw information like a vacuum. In 2019, a report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence indicated that in 2018, the NSA collected information from more than 400 million communication records pertaining to Americans and an untold number of foreign citizens. After all, the NSA was created to break enemy encryptions, which means if anyone could crack an impenetrable code like the Beale ciphers, it would be them. And they've certainly tried. In fact, they put their best guy on the job. One of the NSA's pioneering members was a man named William Friedman. He was considered a code-breaking genius. There wasn't an encryption Friedman couldn't crack. That is, until he discovered the Beale ciphers. He tried every trick in the book, but nothing worked. So he turned the ciphers over to his cryptography students. These were some of the best cryptanalysts in the world, and they were just as stumped, at least officially. But some suggest Friedman's protégés did break the ciphers and find the treasure. Some claim, under the cover of night, a team of NSA employees dressed up as park rangers. They went out into the forest and excavated the loot. Assuming this was an official operation, that team might have been the ultra-classified Special Collection Service, also known as F6. These elite NSA operatives are best known for stealthily planting bugs in high-security locations. If they found the treasure, they would have been in and out like ghosts. And if you listen to this show regularly, you know ghosts are notoriously hard to document. So without any concrete proof of F6's involvement, this is little more than rumor. Even if the cache has been cleaned out, this doesn't mean the government was involved. Some believe the most likely culprit is an amateur seeker. The best evidence for this comes from Mel Fisher, a man who some have deemed the world's greatest treasure hunter. Fisher felt the call of the sea from a very young age. In July 1985, Mel and his son located a long-lost Spanish galleon called Nuestra Señora de Atocha. Inside the ship, they uncovered approximately $450 million worth of gold, silver, and emeralds. But for Mel, treasure hunting was never about the money. When a reporter asked what drove him, he replied, the fun, the romance, and the adventure. So in the late 1980s, when a Virginia resident reached out with information on the Beale treasure, he had to pursue it. Mel conducted his own research, and in the fall of 1989, his team rented a backhoe and dug up a creek near Buford's Tavern. Several feet below a rock ledge, they found a big open space and an empty metal box. If this was the location of Beale's treasure, someone had already claimed it. 
After all, Mel wasn't the first to think he discovered the loot's location. Throughout the 1960s, a steel worker from Pennsylvania made 36 trips to Bedford County in search of the treasure. Eventually, he uncovered an empty vault six feet below an old ice house. From the dust and debris, he estimated it had been cleared out decades earlier. Others have found similar pits through trial and error. However, a few claim to actually decrypt the first cipher, leading them to more specific locations. One of those people was author Larry Hinson, who first linked Beale with John Pernier and Thomas Jefferson. Hinson reckoned if Beale had grown up with the former president, then he likely would have chosen a book from Jefferson's library for the code. Unfortunately, there were a lot of books to choose from. In 1815, Jefferson sold a collection of roughly 6,500 texts to Congress to pay off his debts. Aside from the fact that a number of the books were destroyed in an 1851 fire, Hinson didn't have the time or resources to try them all. So he picked a handful and hoped for the best. For 25 years, Hinson worked methodically, turning each page into a decryption key and testing it against the ciphers. He felt the sting of each failure, but he refused to give up. Then one day, while working on the third text, he had an epiphany. Cipher number two had used the first letter of each designated word in the declaration as a key, but there was no reason the others had to use the same exact system. In front of him was a copy of the Canterbury Tales, a 14th century collection of stories about English pilgrims on a religious adventure. Hinson assumed the tales would have been one of Jefferson's favorites, and the narrative had obvious parallels with Thomas Beale's story. It seemed like the perfect match. Hinson tried using the first letter of each word to make a key, just as the Beale pamphlet's author had with the second cipher. The result was gibberish, so he tried using sounds instead of letters. For example, the first sound in game was the g sound. In Nicholas, he used all. When he put them together, it made a new word, g-old, gold. And slowly but surely, a message emerged. Cipher number three seemed to provide a description of Beale's last adventure, as well as a clue for identifying members of the original party. In the translated text, Beale claimed he buried the treasure directly north of Buford's Tavern in a cave covered with rocks and branches. The rest of cipher number three explained exactly how to divide up the cash. Everyone in the party had one designated heir should they die before claiming their loot. According to Hinson's translation, their information was contained in the 1810 federal census. Unfortunately, the actual names remained a mystery. That is, until Hinson realized the missing piece of the puzzle. In cipher number three, there had been random numbers that didn't fit neatly into his interpretation. Perhaps these numbers were a code within a code. So, using the same sound and syllable method that had given him his translation, he formed a string of words resembling last names like Thorpe, White, and Baker. Suddenly, the mysterious numbers in Cipher 3 made sense. 
They were names that could be found in the 1810 federal census. When Hinson opened the census, he located the name William Thorpe of Brook County on page 675. Next, he turned to page 815 and found Alexander White from Wood County. On page 821, Matthias Baker with County. Hinson had accomplished what no one else, even the NSA, had. He'd solved the riddle of Beale's third cipher. We presume he continued with his work, making headway on cipher number one. Maybe he even discovered the location, grabbed a shovel, drove to the mountains, and started digging. Except, Hinson never found a dime. It's possible Hinson's translation was wrong. He could have just seen what he wanted to see. Or maybe at some point, Beale came back for the treasure without anyone knowing. Alternatively, the owner of Buford's tavern could have followed Beale to the loot and stole it immediately after Beale left. But some say the reason Hinson never found Beale's gold was because it was never there in the first place. Coming up, evidence the Beale ciphers are a hoax. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams. So they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Now, back to the story. It's been nearly 150 years since J.B. Ward published his pamphlet on the Beale Papers. In that time, the area near Buford's Tavern has been torn up, dug out, and blown to bits with dynamite, all to no avail. Some people seemingly did solve the other two ciphers and still found nothing. This included Larry Hinson and Colonel J.J. Holland. Holland spent two decades trying to crack the codes. He shuttled back and forth between Alabama and Virginia, digging up new patches of dirt where he believed the vault was buried. Finally, nearing the end of his life, he concluded there was only one reason he hadn't discovered the hall. The ciphers must have been a hoax. He wasn't the only one who felt that way. Many treasure hunters and cryptographers have come to the same conclusion. This included Beale enthusiast Louis Crew. His journey actually started when a renowned cryptographer told him the first and third ciphers had no solution. If the treasure was fake, Crew suspected there might be clues hinting at that within the pamphlet so he started looking for anything that could undermine the text's credibility. 
For starters, he found it odd the second cipher contained an introduction to the other two. Think about it. John just happened to crack the only cipher that would get people's attention. It said what was buried and offered a rough estimate of where. It also included hints about what would be in ciphers 1 and 3. In other words, it gave treasure hunters and codebreakers a reason to keep trying. If John had cracked cipher number 3 first, all they'd get was a boring list of names and addresses. Not the kind of thing that makes you want to grab your shovel. And the unique code in cipher number 2 raises another question. Why did Beale use multiple ciphers in the first place? We've seen how hard it is to crack a book cipher, but it's also very time-consuming to create one. In order to encrypt cipher number two, Beale had to sit at his desk and number more than 1,000 words in the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't make sense for him to repeat the task two more times instead of just reusing the code he'd already made especially since he entrusted a single friend with all three keys. If the point was to make sure no one but Beale could decrypt all of the codes, then he should have spread the keys out over three different people. Keeping them in one place almost defeated the purpose. But the skeptics wanted hard data to back up their suspicions. So a few cryptography researchers analyzed the remaining ciphers using code-breaking software. They tried a number of different algorithms and looked for patterns in the data, during which a cryptographer discovered something unusual. When the program tried to crack cipher number one using the Declaration of Independence, it was all gibberish. But surprisingly, the computer found a chunk of the alphabet with 14 letters in order. This should have been nearly impossible in a random code. The cryptographer estimated the likelihood of seeing 14 letters in order was one in a trillion. Based on that, he theorized the declaration actually was the key to the remaining ciphers. They just didn't say anything. Another piece of evidence came from Thomas Beale's letters, supposedly written to Robert Morris. In 1988, Lewis Crewe compared these notes to the narrative written by the pamphlet's author, our old friend John. He used a computer program to run an analysis of the writing styles for both individuals. He looked for features like vocabulary level, sentence length, and number of commas. Across the board, the two writers were nearly identical. In other words, Thomas Beale and the anonymous author John seemed to be the same person. If Beale was a made-up character, then who knows how much of the pamphlet we can trust. And if we try to compare John's version of events with actual history, it gets even muddier. For example, Robert Morris said he met Beale in 1820 while managing the Washington Hotel in Lynchburg. But Morris didn't actually lease the hotel until four years later, in the fall of 1824. It's also unclear why Morris waited until 1862 to share Beale's letters with someone. Morris fell gravely ill in 1846, but waited another 16 years to tell John about the box. 
we have to wonder why, when faced with impending death, he kept the secret to himself. Another hiccup has to do with why so few pamphlets survived. When a treasure hunter asked James Ward that question, Ward said most of the copies burned in a fire. Except newspaper records show the only fire in Lynchburg happened in 1883, two years before Ward copyrighted the first pamphlet. So either he already had the pamphlets and sat on them for two years, or he lied about the fire to cover something up. If that's true, it changes everything we thought we knew about Ward. If Ward was lying about the pamphlet, then perhaps he was lying about John as well. Maybe that's why we don't know John's real name. Fortunately, we know a considerable amount about James Ward himself. And when we look closely at his past, a few unexpected connections emerge to link him with the mysterious Beale. For starters, Ward's grandfather had the surname of Risqué. He was potentially the same Mr. Risqué that a certain Thomas Beale allegedly shot in Fincastle, Virginia, back in 1817, before he fled to New Orleans. That's quite a coincidence. And it means the name Thomas Beale might have been ingrained in Ward's mind since childhood. We can also assume Ward knew how to create a book cipher since he attended the prestigious West Point Military Academy in 1838. There he would have learned about the codes used by the Founding Fathers during the Revolutionary War. But Ward wasn't interested in dusty old books. He wanted adventure. After a year and a half, he dropped out of school and traveled to St. Louis with his uncle. At the time, St. Louis was the last stop before the frontier. It was the city where fur traders, cowboys, and indigenous Americans came to buy supplies and sell their wares. They all crossed paths with young Ward, carrying stories of the great Wild West. Ward may have developed a fascination with adventure there, yet been unable to fulfill it. Unlike Beale, he couldn't afford to drop everything and leave on a months-long hunting trip. Perhaps that was something he regretted later in life. Especially given another development years afterward. The first substantial amount of gold was discovered in Colorado about 40 years after Beale's alleged search party. It's odd the group would uncover the precious ore and manage to keep it secret for decades. But if Ward was writing in the 1880s, the presence of gold out west would have been common knowledge by that point. One final detail might have inspired Ward to create the letters. An 1843 short story called The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's tale revolved around William, a once wealthy man who'd lost all his money through bad investments. One day, William discovered a code written by a legendary pirate that led him to a cache of buried treasure. The fictional William had a lot in common with James Ward. Ward had also been born wealthy and nearly bankrupted himself on a lumber mill that went bust. Like William, he was in and out of debt and likely dreamt of turning his fortunes around through found treasure. All this may have made the story more attractive as the template for his hoax. Despite the similarities, Ward always denied composing the pamphlet. 
And since none of Ward's original writings survived, we can't say for sure whether he was the mastermind behind the ciphers. But someone was, and they may have used Beale's name to give them credibility. There are plenty of theories about who the real author might be. Some claim it was Ward, but others believe it was a local playwright named John William Sherman. Unfortunately, there's very little evidence to support any one hypothesis. If the Beale papers were a hoax, they were a really good one. The huckster had to be a magnificent storyteller with a solid grasp of cryptography. They would have spent weeks, if not months, crafting the narrative and creating a code from the Declaration of Independence. And we still don't have a good explanation as for why they did it. Ward was the most likely candidate because he actually sold the pamphlets for money. But at 50 cents a pop, they didn't exactly make him rich. Perhaps the Beale papers were created by someone who loved adventure tales and wanted to share a new one with the world. Not some fantasy short story like Poe's, but one that felt real. One people could believe in and chase after for themselves. Then again, maybe the treasure is still out there, waiting for you to find it. So turn off your device and grab a shovel. The search isn't over yet. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with an all-new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.